0: Today's episode is sponsored by Global Specialized Safety Incorporated, globalssinc.com. That's globalssinc.com. Safe by choice, not by chance, for all of your safety needs. been waiting for this one and on the show today we have Michelle Rempel otherwise known as Michelle Rempel Garner and we are not talking a whole lot about politics today yay for that oh religion and God. politics it's always a good fight if it, when you bring it up and unfortunately COVID and politics are one and the same nowadays mm-hmm. but uh, Michelle I'm gonna start you off with a tough question though Ooh, I'm sorry about this in advance I'm sure you'll forgive me though So you and I met on the Rolling Barrage. That was Mm -hmm. pretty cool. And you know what we do here on this show. So I'm just going to jump right into it. You live with an injured veteran.
1: I do. Well, during normal times. Right now we're separated by several layers of quarantine hotels in the American border. So yes, my husband's an American veteran.
0: All right. So my first question is, what have you learned about living with a veteran who has been injured by PTSD? What have you learned so far about that?
1: You know, it's such a a personal question and, you know, I kind of feel a bit uncomfortable answering it because like, I don't want to, you know, share his story. That's his story to tell. So I can just, you know, sort of talk about my, my perspective, um, it's really made me more aware. <laughs> it sounds so glib, but of PTSD and just what it means, and how it affects every part of your life, um, and how I think, as a like as a society and a culture, we just we just don't understand what it means, um, and how it impacts everybody in a family with somebody who's struggling with it. Um, I think, you know, to be on a positive note, I think it's actually made me a better um spouse in that y- y- you can't be selfish when you're when you're living with somebody who struggles with that. Um you uh have to be aware of their needs and um, he's I don't know, I just feel really grateful um to 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 be with him and and have a support, but And have his support even with everything that, you know, the challenges he struggles with. But he would kill me if I, you know, tried to present him as a victim. But at the same time, he'd also kill me if we we didn't talk about the realities of the situation, which I think, you know, a lot of politicians, leaders, people just try to brush under the rug or make it sound like bullshit. So, um, you know, I guess I'll just close by saying it's really galvanized me uh, to make sure that the country understands that when we are um, asking people to serve our country, that we understand that there's costs for that, uh, that you oftentimes end up living with for life and there has to be adequate supports and people shouldn't have to fight for them when they come home.
0: I haven't heard as health critic um, much conversation about the impact of COVID on mental health. Are there any mm-hmm. metrics that are being tracked because I, I hear, it, oh, there's an impact on mental health, but are there actual metrics being tracked, like the increase in suicides or hospitalizations, yeah. anything like that?
1: It's a great question. Um, I, when I put forward a motion at the health committee, um, as soon as I became health critic in the fall to study um, a variety of impacts of COVID, uh, and one of the first things that we studied was mental health impacts, but the data was like very patchwork and scarce, will be looking at this for 20 years to come, but I have pushed for some data and metrics. Um, uh, I, I used a procedural tool called an order paper question, which is, allows a member of parliament to get data that, um, you know, like members of the public or journalists wouldn't necessarily have access to. And um, we did get da- uh, suicide uh, data uh, from across Canada from sort of the first six months of the pandemic, so a sharp increase there. Uh, sharp increase in addictions, particularly opioid addictions and death, um, sharp increase in domestic violence rates as well. So, you know, but, but again, I think what you're you're talking about is so important um, because, and this is why I moved a motion in the House of Commons uh, with the Conservative Party a few weeks ago, which was rejected by every other party, that the federal government needs to start um, putting together, like, this is pretty mild, but we need a plan to end lockdowns safely and permanently because uh, like, this is, um, you know, even just with my own, like, story, I, and I, I'm in a position of privilege, like, this is impacting everybody's mental health. And I think the thought, you know, this week of, of more lockdowns being floated, it's just, it's too much for a lot of people. And uh, there aren't adequate supports. When we ask about this in the house, like the mental health crisis that's happening, the response that we get is, oh, please go to this website. And it's like, well, yeah, that's not good enough. So we'll just keep fighting on that one.
0: I have actual training in interrogation and torture techniques, uh, how to survive them and also (laughs) how to implement them. And what is happening right now where there's a glimmer of hope, oh, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, than the hope is pulled away, is one of those techniques. It is used on prisoners of war. And yet here we are as a general public and the exact same thing is happening to us. Is that even being considered by our government when uh, they have unclear messages and unfirm timelines?
1: Well, the, the, the lockdown measures, I believe, should always have been temporary and short-lived, in order to give, you know, doctors and legislators time to understand what COVID was, how it spread, and how to combat it with more durable solutions. And a year into that, we have data on that. We have therapeutics. We have rapid tests. We have vaccines. So how come we aren't uh, tying metrics to? reopening around the use of those things. I can tell you why. Uh, we're way behind other countries in getting that those tools into our country, never mind deploying them. Um, and, and, and also, you know, our, our healthcare system in Canada, something that nobody wants to talk about, because it is provincial jurisdiction in many areas, it doesn't allow for adequate data sharing. So, you know, I'm, like, when I ask basic questions, like, okay, well, Uh, What data do you have that shows that a quarantine hotel is going to uh, prevent the spread of COVID better than sending somebody directly to their home with, you know, post-arrival testing? (laughs) It's like, well, that doesn't exist. And, you know, the the liberals, like, what they always try and do is say, like, oh, well, you know, we need to have a science-based approach, but there's no science at this point. Like, there's a lot of decisions being made on restrictions where we just don't have uh, certainly, at the federal level, on the border specifically, the, the data is not there, and I think you know we need to we need to move forward with the tools that we have at our at our disposal. So, to your point, it, that hope isn't just always taken away. I don't think any Canadian right now has a clear bead on when this is going to end, and there's no reason for that.
0: There could be and should be a plan, and needs to be for the well-being of all of us. It's um... When you keep moving the goalposts and moving the goalposts, uh, you're going to see a direct result in suicides and business closures that cause suicides. When you lose everything that you've owned, um, most people that are not entrepreneurs, they don't understand the amount of work, life. Blood, sweat and tears, life savings, the, the legacy that you're planning for your children, your pension is all wrapped up in the business that you have. It's your entire future yeah. and, and it's your legacy. And when you lose it through no fault of your own, it is absolutely devastating. Has the, um, what is the government doing to protect small businesses right now?
1: Well, I mean, like, if I was a Liberal, um, you know, I'd be sitting here telling you, like, oh, well, we've got these programs and supports. But really what needs to be laid out is benchmarks and guidance from the federal government on reopening. And other countries have done this, like the UK has done this. The US has been out on this for over a month now. Um, So why can't we have nice things, too? I I mean, small business is... uh, I don't, you know, being a small business owner right now, I can't even imagine. And, you know, it's just the um, the sort of arrogance of, of some of these liberals, like, well, we've got government supports for you. It's like, just think about that. It's like, as a business owner, you don't want to be told that there's, you know... Y- y- you want to know when you can have the dignity of work back, when you can have certainty in reopening. Like, I think about... Um, I, I've I've met with some fitness trainers, for example, in my riding. They own a, a few gym owners, and they're like, "Well, we're going under. Like, you can't just keep opening and closing us." Imagine owning a restaurant, like a small family restaurant, right now. Like, it's just uh, it's impossible. Um, never mind tourism, you know, a- airlines, all the bigger businesses. But I, I mean, just to bring it home again, like the other thing is. Uh, like, you have to understand this in the individual human cost too. And I mean, even just speaking to my own, again, I'll say I'm in a position of privilege, but like my husband, you know, my husband did multiple tours. Uh, you know, he's got 100% disabled rating with the US Army. Um, he can't sit in a quarantine hotel for two weeks. Like, 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 do you, like, he, he will, you know, like, he will sit in, in quarantine for two weeks to be, you know, to have the opportunity to be with me and comply with everything. But, like, do you know what that does to him? Like, like to, to, to be, like, and, like, look, we all want to support um, public health measures and do our part. Um, but, but like, <laughs> like, at some point we've got to start saying, how do we move forward using these tools and just understand that, Um, there's a lot of people who are really suffering right now and it's almost like it's just not that suffering is not being paid attention to in any way, shape or form. Like it's just not even being acknowledged.
0: Is there any government response whatsoever to support mental health as it relates to COVID?
1: Not enough. Um, I think step one is like, you're so right in saying like, we've got to have hope. There needs to be some end in sight, like some benchmarks, right? Um, that needs to be there first and foremost. Hope does a world of good, um, but then beyond that, this is why um, our party has—you know—we started to lay out some of the pillars for an eventual election campaign, whenever that might be. Um, again, this that will be of Trudeau's making. It's not something that we're adv- adv- actively agitating for. Um, but one of the big pillars is—is is a like. An incredibly different and beefed-up national system of support for mental health, um, I, but like as it relates to the pandemic, like yes, we need to put more services in in place. Of course, there's some. Like, you and I could talk about this for three hours. What we need to do, but Easily. Hope, hope, hope needs to be there, and I think that's what I'm going to stay on for today because. Like, I mean, it's like even him, like I'd like, I'd like to see my, I haven't seen my stepkids since, you know, late spring last year. My, my, you know, my mother-in-law has stage four breast cancer and I haven't seen her since late last year. My parents are aged. I can't, I haven't seen them since late spring last year. I just are longer than that. And, um, it's really hard. It's hard being alone and not being with my spouse. So I, I just, I want, I want hope. Um, And I, I, and I, again, I'm in a position of privilege. I, I, everybody in this country deserves hope and we, uh, you know, the federal government is in a position to, to do that.
0: In a more general sense, how is our healthcare system when it comes to mental health? Well,
1: um, (laughs) I I think, well, how can we put it mildly? It could use some improvement. I mean, there's just not at like,
0: can and Use little not, polish.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, like, I, first of all, you know, credit to 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 people who are providing mental health services during the pandemic, um, and 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 credit and honor to them. But we need to do like we need to way overhaul the system, put a lot more financial resources into it, um, and and also understand that like providing mental health support is not this like homogenous thing that. You know, it's a one-size-fits-all approach. It really depends on personal circumstance. And so we have to look at redesign and support, uh, understanding the diversity of, of causes of mental health issues, and then also understand that it's not just treating the symptoms, it's also treating the cause. And there's a lot of issues, you know, that there's a, the whole host of issues around veterans' mental health. Um, you know, you, you look at poverty, you look at... Um, racism, gender issues, different types of equality issues that lead to discriminatory behaviors, um, sexual abuse, all sorts of things that lead to mental health uh, concerns, anxiety. Um, this is like, even when we're talking about addiction, right, I think that there's often this sort of parochial uh, view of how to treat addiction, and, um, you know, you, you need to meet people where, we're at, where they're at, and the government should be looking at more of like a patient-centered approach rather than sort of this um, rigid, siloed system that's been around for so long that really doesn't reflect reality in terms of treatment. So obviously, you know, this uh, provincial jurisdiction is important, but the federal government does have a responsibility to provide resources and uh, and some guidance on, on, on what's needed. Um, you know, somebody's mental health in Canada should be just as, important as physical health. Uh, and they're often, you know, strongly related. So, um, if the pandemic didn't spur, act, doesn't spur action on this, I'm not sure what will, but we've committed to that. So you'll, you can expect to see more from us on that for sure too.
0: Are there any specific measures that you'd like to see taken when it comes to mental health?
1: Well, what are some of the things you want to see from your perspective? Because I know you speak, speak out about this a lot
0: Accessibility is the big one. Uh, right now, mental health supports are so insanely fractured. Uh, I had no idea how big this world was until I started this show. And what I'm finding is that there's a zillion little mon poppers like myself that are providing mental health supports, and they are not there's no umbrella under which they can operate. So there's no one place that it aggregates all these different sources. And it's all volunteer, charity, nonprofit kind of resourced uh, from uh, mental health, uh, PTSD resorts, not resorts, um, retreats, um, mm. my podcast, which is an aggregate for different mental health uh, modalities. So bringing it together and finding a place uh, where... Somebody can go and have it in categories. If you're looking for a retreat, here here you go. Here's a list. If you're looking for a podcast, here's a list. If you're looking for what uh, counseling or equine therapy, here's a list. And that's something that should be provided because it doesn't really exist in a meaningful way right now. There's little bits and pieces here and there, but that's it.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Like, And again, when we talk about sort of having a a person-centered approach, it means that, you know, rather than you as the person having to, like, figure out how the system comes to you, is that you should be able to walk through one door uh, knowing what what you need and be able to have it available without, you know, pushing for thought as hard as we do right now. This is what my, my colleague Todd Doherty from Northern BC talks about this, a lot with his initiative to start a mental health services hotline. Like a, I, th- I think it's like eight, nine, nine, I'm probably getting it wrong. I'm sorry, Todd. Um, but, but saying like, look, like when somebody's in crisis, you know, do you really think that they're going to sit there and Google through a million different, um, a million different services and then, you know, phone through five different hotlines? Like, like it needs to be easy. It needs to be, like you said, organized, but also understanding that there's a broad variety. So I, I love that theme of accessibility, I, but I also think, you know, accessibility carries into the concept of availability. Um, uh, there's just not, not enough support. Um, and it, it, like you said, it, we also can't just look at it from the perspective of one-on-one behavioral therapy, that there's a wide variety of services that are needed for mental health support and, um, And, you know, let's say somebody with a disability is going to, like a physical disability is going to need different types of support than somebody who maybe who doesn't. So just looking at those intersectional issues too. So I know that we're giving this a lot of thought. Um, I've been in a lot of conversations about what we would present in terms of a platform, but I was glad to see um, that platform, like that pillar rolled out front and center um, at our convention a couple of weeks ago. And you, I mean, I would say this. um, This really needs to be community driven, and just an open invitation to anybody who's listening. That if you do have ideas or needs or stories of you know what needs to be done, uh, very much open to to listening to that and making sure that it makes it it makes its way into policy.
0: And we're at twenty minutes, Michelle. It was no. fa- fast 20, 20 minutes for sure, but thank you. I know,
1: Mark. I just want to say like, thank you so much for your patience with me. Um, <laughs> my my life is not my own, and, like, yeah. trying to schedule. My, my colleague, Julia, is my boss, and uh, we we have an emergency meeting at the health committee this afternoon, which is what I'm popping off for. But I just want to thank you for um, raising awareness of this issue. I want to you know thank you for your hum- humility and uh, I think, you know, your kind approach to this and also just, you know, uh, you know, on behalf of my family, um, the more awareness that are made of this issue, uh, I think the easier it is going to be for a- to get action. But I will say this, like my eyes have really been opened up through my relationship with my husband um, on, you know, frankly, how poorly we treat veterans in Canada across different levels of government, across different flavors of government And there needs to be a lot of change. Um, So this is near and dear to my heart. And uh, um, I just want to thank you for your work and for this podcast. I think it's pretty cool.
0: Thanks, Michelle. And thank you for making the time. I've been uh, tracking you down for a year. I finally got you. (laughs) You
1: have been. You have been.
0: Well, I am relentless, if nothing else.
1: You are. Have a good one. All right, my
0: friend. And we'll do this again.
1: Thank you. All
0: right. Bye-bye. we Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favour to ask you, and I know everybody asks for the same favour, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment, that would be awesome. Also on your favourite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back